0: Chapter Eleven of Ride Proud Rebel, by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The road to Nashville. Sleet drove at the earth with an oblique, knife-edged whip. The half-ice, half-rain struck under logged hat brims, found the neck opening, where the body covering improvised from a square of appropriated Yankee oilcloth lay about the shoulders. I'm thinking we sure have stuck a stream lengthwise. Kirby's Tejano, crowded up beside Hannibal, can't otherwise be so many bog holes in any stretch of country. And if we ever do come across those dang blasted ordnance wagons, we wouldn't know from the side of Dobie anyway. They had reined in on the edge of a mud hole in which men sweated in spite of the sleet which plastered thin clothing to their gaunt bodies, swore and put dogged endurance to the test as they labored with drag ropes and behind wheels encrusted with pendulous pounds of mud to propel a supply wagon out of the bog into which it had sunk when the frozen crust of the rutted road had broken apart. The Army of the Tennessee, now fighting storms, winter rains, snow, and hail, was also fighting men as valiantly engaged in general hood's great gamble of an all-out attack on nashville they had a hope and a slim chance to sweep through the union lines back up into tennessee and kentucky and perhaps to wall off sherman in the south and repair the loss of atlanta hannibal braid shifting his weary feet in the churned-up muck of the field edge the ground covered with a scum of ice at night was a trap for animals as well as vehicles. Breaking through that glassy surface to the glutinous stuff beneath, they suffered cuts deep enough to draw blood above the hoof level. Drew called to the men laboring at the stalled wagon. ordnance, Buford's division? He didn't really expect any sort of a promising answer. This was worse than trying to hunt a needle in a stack of hay. His tracing... Through the fast darkened night, the lost ordnance wagons caught somewhere in or behind the infantry train. But ahead, where Forrest's cavalry was thrusting into the Union lines at Spring Hill, men were going into battle with three rounds or less to feed their carbines and rifles. Somehow, the horse soldiers had pushed into a hot, full-sized fight, and the scouts had to locate those lost wagons and get them up to the front lines. A living figure of mud spat out a mouthful of that viscous substance in order to answer. "'This here ain't no ordinance. Not from Buford's, neither. Put your backs into it now, you wagon dogs. Get to it and push.' Under that roar, the excavation squad went into straining action. Oxen, their eyes bulbous in their skulls from effort, set brute energy against yokes along with men. The mud eventually gave grip, and the wagon moved. Drew rode on. The two half-seen shapes, which were Boyd and Kirby, in his wake. A dripping branch flicked bits of ice into his face. The dusk was a thickening murk, and with the coming of the November dark, their already pitiful chance of locating the wagons dwindled fast. There was a distant crackle of carbine and rifle fire. The struggle must still be in progress back there. At least the stragglers about them were still moving up. No retreat from Spring Hill unless the Yankees were making that. All Drew's party could do was to continue on down the road, asking their question at each wagon, stalled in the mud or traveling at a snail's pace. "'Do you see?' Boyd cried out. Those men were barefoot. Involuntarily, he swung one of his own booted feet out of the stirrup, as if to assure himself that he still had adequate covering for his cold toes. "'It ain't the first time in this here war,' Kirby remarked. "'They'll catch him a Yankee. The Bluebellies, they're mighty obliging about wearing good shoes and such, and letting themselves be roped with all their plunder on. Some of em who I had the pleasure of surveying through Sarge's glass this morning, have overcoats, good warm ones. Now that's what would pleasure a poor, cold Texas boy. "'making him forget his troubles. "'You keep your eyes sighted for one of them overcoats, boy. "'I'll be right beholden to you for it.' "'Hannibal brayed again and switched his rope tail. "'His usual stolid temper showed signs of wear. Airin those lungs, that way, "'sounds like a critter getting set to make war medicine. "'A hardtail don't need no hardware but his hoofs "'to make a man regret knowing him, familiar-like.' Drew had reached another wagon. Ordnance? Buford's? He repeated the well-worn question without hope. Yeah, what about it? For a moment the scout thought he had not heard that right, but Kirby's crow of delight assured him that he had been answered in the affirmative. What about it? Boyd echoed indignantly. We've been hunting you for hours. General Buford wants... The man who had answered Drew was vague in the dusk to be seen only in the limited light of the lantern on the driver's seat but they did not miss the pugnacious set of knuckles on hips nor the truculence which overrode the weariness in his voice the general can want him a lot of things in this here world sonny what the good lord in this here mud lets him have is something else again we've been pushing these here dang blasted to richmond wagons along mostly with our bare hands does he want him any faster he could just send us back thirty or forty fresh teams, along with good weather, and we'll be right up where he wants us in no time. The boys are out of ammunition, Drew said quietly, and they're trying to dig out the Yankees. You ain't telling me nothing, soldier, that I don't know, or ain't heard already. The momentary flash of anger had drained out of the other's voice. There was just pure fatigue weighing the tongue now. We're coming just as fast as we can. "'You pull on about a quarter of a mile, and there's a turnout. "'That way you'll make better time,' Drew suggested. "'We'll show you where.' "'All right, we're coming.' In the end, they all pitched to, lending the pulling strength of their mounts and the power of their own shoulders when the occasion demanded. Somehow they got on through the dark and the cold and the mud, and close to dawn they reached their goal. But that same dark night had lost the Confederate army their chance of victory. The Union command had not been safely bottled up at Spring Hill. Through the night hours, Schofield's army had marched along the turnpike within gunshot of the gray troops, close enough for Hood's pickets to hear the talk of the retreating men. Now they must be pursued toward Franklin. The army of the Tennessee was hurting the Yankees right enough, but with a kind of desperation which men in the ranks could sense. Buford's division held the Confederate right wing, Drew acting as a courier for the Kentucky general, saw Forrest with his tough, undefeated, and undefeatable escort riding ahead. They had Wilson's cavalry drawn up to meet them, but they had handled Wilson before briskly and brutally. This was the old game they knew well. Drew saw the glitter of sabers along the Union ranks and smiled grimly. When were the Yankees going to learn that a saber was good for the toasting of bacon and such, but not much use in the fight? Give him two colts and a carbine every time. There was a fancy dodge he had seen some of the Texans use. They strung extra revolver cylinders to the saddle horn and snapped them in for reloading. It was risky, but sure was vast. They got Springfields he heard kirby's satisfied comment i'm going to get me one of those boys began but drew rounded on him swiftly no he ain't they may look good but they ain't much you can't reload them in the saddle with your horse movin', and all they're good for in a mix-up is a fancy sort of club the confederate infantry were moving up toward the union breastworks part of which was a formidable stone wall and now came the orders for their own section to press in. They pushed hard and heavy, while squirrels of blue cavalry fought, broke reformed to meet their advance, and broke again. They routed out pockets of blue infantry, sending some pelting back toward the hard path. A wave of retreating Yankees crossed the shallow river. Forrest's men dismounted to fight and took the stream on foot the icy water splashing high it was wild and tough the slam of man meeting man drew wrestled a guidon from the hold of a blue-coated trooper as hannibal smashed into the other's mount with bared teeth and pawing hoofs waving the trophy over his head and yelling he pounded on at a knot of determined infantry aware that he was leading others from buford's still mounted headquarters company and that they were going to ride right over the Yankee soldiers. Men threw away muskets and rifles, raised empty hands, scattered in frantic leaps from that charge. Then they were rounding up their blue-coated prisoners, and Drew, the pole of the captured guidon braced in the crook of his elbow as he reloaded his revolver, realized that the shadows were thickening, that the day was almost gone. Rennie, still holding the guidon, Drew obeyed the beckoning hand of one of the general's aides. He pulled Hannibal to a rocking gallop to come up with the officer. Withdrawn behind the river, passed a word to gather in. Drew cantered back to wave in Kirby, Boyd, and the others, who had made that charge with him. It was a retreat again, but they did not know, then, that Franklin had cost them Hood's big gamble. Forty-five hundred men swept out of the gray forces Killed, wounded, missing prisoners. Five irreplaceable generals were dead. Six more wounded or captured. The army of the Tennessee was slashed, badly torn, but it was not yet destroyed. That night the cavalry was on the march, driven by Forrest's tireless energy. They hit skirmishers at a garrison crossroads, using Morton's field batteries to cut them a free path and through the bitter days of early december they continued to show their teeth to some purpose blockhouses along the railroad and along the cumberland were taken with murphy's borough their goal life was a constant alert a plugging away of weary men worn out horses bogged down wagons relieved now and then from the morass of exhaustion by sharp spurts of fighting the satisfaction of rounding up a Yankee patrol or blockhouse squad, then taking of some supply trains and finding in its wagons enough to give them all mouthfuls of food. Murfreesboro was strongly garrisoned by the enemy, too strong to be stormed. But on the morning of the seventh, a Yankee detachment came out of that fort and Forrest's men deployed to entice them farther afield. Buford's command was lying in wait. Let the blue bellies get far enough from the town and they could cut in between, perhaps even overrun the remaining garrison and accomplish what Forrest himself had believed impossible, the taking of Murfreesboro. They made part of that, fought their way into the town. Drew pounded along in a compact squad led by Wilkins. He saw the sergeant sway in the saddle, dropping reins, his face a clay gray which Drew recognized of old. Snatching at the now trailing rein, Drew jerked the other's mount out of the main push. The sergeant's head turned slowly. His mouth looked almost square as he fought to say something. Then he slumped, tumbling from the saddle into the embrace of an ornamental bush as his horse clattered along the sidewalk. Drew knew he was already dead. Buford's men went into Murfreesboro right enough well into its heart, but they could not hold the town. Only that thrust was deep and well-timed. It saved the whole command, for though they did not know it yet, on the pike the infantry had broken. For the first time Forrest had seen men under his orders run from the enemy in panic-stricken terror. Only the cavalry had saved them from a wholesale rout. Drew trudged over the stubble of a field, leading Hannibal and Wilkins mount. There had been no way of bringing the sergeant's body out of town, and Drew had reported the death to Lieutenant Traggard, who officered the scouts. He felt numb as he headed for the spark of fire which marked their temporary camp, numb not only with cold and hunger, but with all the days of cold, hunger, fighting, and marching which lay behind. It seemed to him that this war had gone on forever. And he found it very hard to remember when he had slept soundly enough not to arouse to a quick call, when he had dared to ride across a field or down a road without watching every bit of cover, every point on the landscape which could mask an enemy position or serve the same purpose for the command behind him. As he came up to the fire, he thought that even the flames looked cold, stunted somehow not because there had not been enough wood to feed them, but because the fire itself was old and tired. Blinking at the flames, he stood still, unaware of the fact that he was swaying on feet planted a little apart. He could not move, not on his own volition. Someone coughed in the shadow fringe beyond the light of those tired flames. It was a short, hard cough, the kind which hurt Drew's ears, as much as its tearing must have hurt the throat which harbored it. He turned his head a fraction to see the bundle of blankets housing the coffer. Then the reins of mule and horse were twisted from his stiff fingers, and Kirby's draw broke through the coffin. "'You, Larange take him back to the picket line, will you?' The Texan's hand closed about Drew's upper arm, just below the arch of his shoulder, steered him on, and then pressed him down. Into the limited range of the fire's heat. From somewhere, a tin plate materialized and was in Drew's hold. He regarded its contents with eyes which had trouble focusing. A thick liquid curled stickily back and forth across the surface of the plate as he strove to hold it level with trembling hands. Into the middle of that lake, Kirby dropped white squares of Yankee crackers, and the pungent smell of molasses reached through his nostrils, making his mouth water. Snatching at the crackers, he crammed his mouth with a dripping square coated with molasses. As he began to chew, he knew that nothing before that moment had ever tasted so good, been so much an answer to all the disasters of the day. The world shrank. It was now the size of a battered tin plate smeared with molasses and the crumbs of stale crackers. Drew down the mess avidly. Kirby was beside him again, a steaming tin cup ready. This ain't nothing but hotted water, but maybe it can make you think you're drinking something more interesting. With the tin cup in his hands, Drew discovered that he could pay better attention to his surroundings. He glanced around the small circle of men who messed together. There was Larange coming back from the horse lines. Webb, the Tennessean from the mountains, Crofton Weatherby, Cherokees of the Indian Nation, and Kirby, of course. But Drew was searching beyond the Texan for the other who should be there. Absently he sipped the hot water, almost afraid to ask a question. Then just because of his inner fears he forced out the words, Where's Boyd? When Kirby did not answer, Drew's head lifted. He put down his cup and caught the Texan's arm. He made it out of town, I know, but where is he? Over there. Kirby nodded at the blanket-wrapped figure in the shadows. Seems like he ain't feelin' too well. Drew wasted no time in getting to his feet. On his hands and knees, he scrambled across the space separating him from the roll of blankets, his questing hand smoothed across a ragged bullet tear in the top one recognizing it to be Kirby's by that mark. The pale oval of Boyd's face turned toward him. What's the matter, boy? Drew could hear the other's harsh, fast breathing, just as he had when they had found the injured boy at Harrisburg. Drew's fingers touched a burning, hot cheek. Got me sniffles. Boyd's mumble ended in another bout of those sharp coughs. Member sniffles? Hot soups and bricks in bed and onion cloth for the throat. He repeated all the Oak Hill remedies for a severe cold. Bricks to warm the bed, hot soup of Mam' Gusta's expert concoctin, a thick onion poultice to ease the pain in throat and chest and draw out inflammation. Every one of these were as far beyond reach now as Oak Hill itself. For a moment Drew was gripped with a panic born of utter frustration. Shelly, you there, Shelly? Boyd's hoarse voice came from the dark. I'm sure thirsty, Shelly. Drew turned his head. Kirby had been behind him, but now the Texan was back to the fire, ladling more hot water out of the pot. When he returned, Weatherby was with him. Drew slipped his arm under the restless, turning head to support the boy while the Texan held the tin-cup to Boyd's lips. They got a few mouthfuls into him, before he turned his head away with a ghost of some of his old petulance. "'I'm hungry, Shelley. Tell ma'am, Gusta.' Weatherby squatted down on the other side of boy's limp body and put his hand to the boy's forehead. "'Fever. Yes,' Drew knew that much. "'There's a farmhouse two miles that way. Weatherby nodded to the south. Maybe nobody there, but it will be cover.' "'You can find it,' Drew demanded. The Cherokee scout answered quickly, yes. You tell the lieutenant and we'll go there. Kirby's hand rested on Drew's shoulder for a moment. I'll track down Traggart. You and Weatherby here get the kid into that cover as quickly as you can. This ain't no weather for an hombre with a cough to be out sacking in the bush. Kirby was back again before they had rigged a blanket stretcher between two horses. The lieutenant says to stay with the kid until morning. He'll send the doc along as soon as he can find him. Trouble is, we may have to ride on tomorrow. But Drew put that worry out of his mind. No use thinking about tomorrow. The present moment was the most important. With Weatherby as their guide, they started off at a walk, heading into the night across ice-rimmed fields, while the rising wind brought frost to bite in the air they pulled into their lungs. There was no light showing in the black bulk of the house to which Weatherby steered them. It was small, hardly better than a cabin, but the door swung open as Kirby knocked on it, and they could smell the cold, stale odor of a deserted and none-too-clean dwelling. But it was shelter, and exploring in the dark, Kirby announced that there was firewood piled beside the hearth. By the light of the blaze, whether it be brought alive, they found an old bedstead backed against the wall, a tangle of filthy quilts cascading from it. One look at them assured Drew that Boyd would be far better off left in his blankets on the floor itself. The Cherokee scout prowled the room, looking into rickety wall cupboards, venturing through another door into a second smaller room, really a lean-to, then going up the ladder into a loft. They left in a hurry, whoever lived here, he reported. They left this. He held out a dried, trunken piece of shriveled salt beef. We can boil it, Kirby suggested. Make a kind of broth. It might help the kid. Any sign of a pot? There was a pot encrusted with cornmeal remains. Weatherby took it outside and returned, having scrubbed its interior as clean as possible and filling it with a cup or so of water. There's a well out there. Boyd was asleep, or at least Drew hoped it was sleep. The boy's face was flushed, his breathing fast and uneven. But he hadn't coughed for some time, and Drew began to hope. If he could have a quiet day or two here, he might be all right, or else the surgeon could send him along on one of the wagons for the sick and wounded. The wagon's already on the move south if the doctor was certified that boy was ill. Weatherby was busily shredding the wood-hard beef into the pot of water. His busy fingers stopped. His dark eyes were now on the outer door. Drew stiffened. Kirby's fingers closed about the butt of a colt. What? Drew asked, in the faintest of whispers. The Cherokee dropped the remainder of the uncut beef into the pot. Knife in hand, he moved with a panther's fluid grace to the begrimed window, half covered with a dusty rag. End of chapter 11.